Hey folks, it's Kevin here. So I promised at the beginning of the season that you would be hearing from a few of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues. In this episode, I am super excited to introduce you to one of my colleagues. You've heard her as the host of The Walk-In. You've also seen her on TV on our PBS show. It's Elle Simone Scott. Hey Elle, how's it going? Hey Kevin, everything's going great. How are you? I'm doing awesome and super excited to have you host today's episode of Proof. And I hear you've been working on a story that's particularly near and dear to your heart. Yeah, I've been having this great conversation with reporter Sheila V. Kumar. Sheila is Indian American and grew up eating a vegetarian diet for most of her life. And even though she's a reporter for a living and she's a thoughtful person, she had never really given much thought to why she's vegetarian. Where did that choice come from and what does it say about her identity? And those questions took her on a really interesting journey, one I could relate to in a lot of ways. Now, I said that this was near and dear to your heart, Elle, because from what I know of you, you were a vegetarian growing up. Is that right? That's right. I grew up in the Seventh-day Adventist church, and so I grew up eating vegetarian for religious reasons. But as I've grown, I've found my own path for why I eat and how I eat. And so talking with Sheila about her own journey to answer these questions for herself really resonated with me. Well, Elle, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and I can't wait to hear the rest of this episode. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Elle Simone Scott, and this is Proof. Producer Sheila V. Kumar brings us this story. I've been a vegetarian my entire life, and I have never really wanted to try meat. Vegetarianism is pretty common these days, so I'm rarely asked why I'm vegetarian. When I am, I have a fairly easy explanation. I was raised that way. If they question any further, I have another easy answer. I'm vegetarian for religious reasons. I grew up in a town called Belagavi in a, in a southern state of India called Karnataka. That's my mom, Shashi. I have been a vegetarian all my life. Um, that has been the culture in our home. None of us ate any meat, neither my parents nor my grandparents as far as I know. So we've always been vegetarians. My mom emigrated to the United States in 1985, and I was born three years later. She raised my sister and I on a diet of South Indian food. Growing up, we only occasionally ate what you might call American food at home. Pasta and scrambled eggs were the only non-Indian foods I remember my mom making. So, seven days a week, our Corel dinner plates were filled with rice, homemade yogurt, chapatis, and vegetable side dishes that we call palyas. One food we ate a lot were dosas, but because they're kind of labor-intensive, we only really ate them on weekends. Traditionally, dosas are vegetarian, and they're often served with potato palya, coconut chutneys, and a lentil and vegetable stew that we called sambar. Whenever I visit my parents to this day, it's still the one thing I ask my mom to make. If you're not familiar, dosas are a South Indian specialty that's made from a batter of rice, thals, and fenugreek seeds. Lots of menus describe them as a savory crepe or a thin pancake, and sure, I guess they're flat and circular and cooked on a hot, flat pan, but the similarities end there. We soak 
a couple of different things overnight and those items are rice, parboiled rice, some beaten rice, urad dal, along with some methi seeds. We soak this overnight or for several hours and then we grind it. I've always associated dosas with South India and I've come to learn that this is a bit of a generalization. India is an enormous country and every region has its own cuisine built on the produce and spice found in that local geography. But both sides of my family are from Karnataka. It's a state in southern India that's known for flavors swirling with coconuts, the tangy sour pucker of tamarind, and the caramely sweetness of jaggery. I've also always associated vegetarianism with South India, but that's actually not an accurate association to make. As it turns out, only 21% of Karnataka residents are vegetarian. There's a myth that India is largely a vegetarian nation, but really only a third of Indians are. This is according to a survey done by the Indian government a few years ago. A parallel myth is that South Indians are majority vegetarian, but people in the northern and western states are actually much more likely to restrict meat. I am not the only one making that assumption. So South Indians, it's vegetarian. It's all vegetarian. Obviously, no meat. Wait. Is that our Madam Vice President, then Senator Kamala Harris and Mindy Kaling cooking together? Yeah, yes, that is. Now, uh, Vice President Harris, she made this video while she was running for president. And she met up with the comedian Mindy Kaling and they made dosas in Mindy's kitchen. And the Indian community really liked this clip. First of all, because dosas are not traditionally what you think of when you think of Indian food. And then secondly... I, you know, as a child of immigrants myself, also really appreciated the shout out to the Folgers jars because my mother also stored all of her spices and lentils in old coffee jars. I really love that the Folgers jars being used. And I feel like we all have like a Folgers can that we use for like cooking grease. Yeah, that sounds exactly like the jars of spices. I don't even know why they had so many Folgers jars because I've never seen my mom or my dad Drink coffee. Drink it. (laughs) Exactly. So, Sheila, how does being the the child of an immigrant family create new groups with meaning that extend beyond the communities our parents had in the homeland? It's interesting. I mean, when my parents came over, they were the first of their families to emigrate to the United States. So even though our experience as South Indians is quite different from that of other regions from India— We still crafted a community of other immigrant families who also have kids around the same age. And in that way, we were able to create a community of other immigrant Indian children. And we were raised eating the same foods, practicing the same parts of religion. Even though if we'd been in India, we we probably would have had very different experiences. It reminds me very much of like growing up in this Seventh-day Adventist community that I grew up in my whole life, right? planning our birthday parties together, doing lots of things as a collective, almost as a means to not like have to explain why we do the things that we do, you know? And I think it's even the same with, especially with dietary rules or practices. When you're with fellow vegetarians, you don't really have to explain why you are, whether it's religious or or ethical, you just don't have to explain it. And that's pretty cool. That's a really, really good point to make because- I think the fact that I was lucky enough to have this community also kind of ensured that 
I didn't question a lot of the choices we were making because it was just kind of was. So, you know, the the child, the child Sheila wasn't questioning why we didn't serve meat at home because traditionally a lot of my friends in the Indian community that I grew up with also didn't eat meat. The more I've dug into this story, the more I've had to come to terms with a lot of assumptions I've made about my own identity. I thought my family was vegetarian for religious reasons. I also thought I was vegetarian because I'm South Indian. I definitely thought my vegetarianism had nothing to do with the Indian caste system, the social hierarchy that divides Hindus into five categories. But I now understand there's a lot more nuance and subtlety to these identifiers because none of those assumptions were really true. Which means I've lived my life a certain way without questioning it. So now I'm asking, why am I a vegetarian at all? And more importantly, should I be vegetarian just because I'm Indian American? This question is important to me because of the weight I place on my own vegetarianism. Like I've said, I'm the daughter of Indian immigrants, so already there are assumptions that others make about me that I have to contend with. For example, I'm terrible at math, and I'm really bad at spelling, and I'm not a doctor, and I'm definitely not an engineer. When I was in high school, I actually really hated being Indian. I wanted to be known for something other than having brown skin like for being a good swimmer or being a writer with a really well-developed voice. But I didn't get to choose the kind of label people attached to me. And since I was one of just a few BIPOC teenagers in my suburban Colorado high school, I felt like I was the token brown girl. I really hated that. But even then, shedding the vegetarian part of my identity was a non-starter. And I think that's because it was the only thing I got to really choose about being Indian American. So throughout all my ups and downs and grappling with being a second-generation immigrant, the one thing that has been a constant is this dietary choice. And I chose it not just because I wanted to be compassionate towards animals or because it's the environmentally responsible choice— but because I felt like it was the only and one of the last threads to my family. So let's dig into the first assumption I've made, that I'm vegetarian because I'm Hindu. To clarify, my family is a part of a branch of Hinduism that formed in the 12th century CE, known sometimes as Virashaivism. They're also referred to as Lingayats. My mom says she's not sure if the teachings of the sect dictate vegetarianism. It's definitely confusing. I have found guidebooks on the website for Virashaivism that say we are vegetarian, but I found guidance on the same website saying it's a myth that all Lingayats are vegetarian. I've pressed my parents repeatedly on why we are vegetarian, and I feel like I get mixed answers about it. The one constant is that they say it's just how things are. That's just been the tradition in the, in the family. Or, you know, um, that's just been the tradition. I really don't know how far back it, it goes where people stopped, where the generations of families stopped eating meat. I don't know that. I mean, I've never looked into it because it just never occurred to me. We just, you know, we just took it for granted that we are vegetarians, just like how we take it for granted the arranged marriages that you guys can't even relate to. While I was interviewing my mom, I asked her a few times why she was saying culture or tradition and not religion or what dictated her diet. 
It's tricky to parse out how these things are not that different for many Hindus, and it's not at all unusual for Hindus to say they're both Hindu and not religious. In fact, in June of this year, the Pew Research Center published a report on religious identity, nationalism, and tolerance in Indian society. After surveying nearly 30,000 adults in 17 languages, the report concluded that, for many Hindus, national identity and religion are closely connected. And, the survey found, central to that religious identity are dietary laws. Nearly three-quarters of Hindus surveyed said that a person cannot be Hindu if they eat beef, which is somewhat shocking when juxtaposed with another finding. Almost 50% of Hindus believe you can be Hindu without even believing in God. So that tells me that dietary restrictions are more closely related with Hinduism than actual belief in God. For many, Hinduism is seen as a lifestyle, a way of life, and not just a religion. I know that most Hindus aren't vegetarian, and I was wrong to think that the religious debate could be easily settled by saying my specific sect was vegetarian. But the other thing I was told about being Lingayat was that our sect had rejected the caste system when it branched off. My mom explained it like this. There was no castes. Caste was something that, you know, was a hierarchy. People, Brahmins were treated as the highest level and Shudras were the lowest level. So Lingayat, being a Vedashava, is really not, it's not a caste at all. It's, it's a movement that was created to, keep, to treat everybody equally. Some quick context about the Indian caste system. It's a social hierarchy that divides Hindus into five main categories. Caste rankings can also influence the purity of diet or occupation. At the top are Brahmins, the educated, priestly class. Dalits fall into a fifth category that's considered to be outside of the caste system, and they are often discriminated against. The term you might be familiar with is untouchable. It's a repugnant system that is confusing, outdated, and hypocritical. I've come to learn that vegetarianism and upper casteism are really, really linked. And to a point where it seems like if you're an Indian vegetarian, you're probably Brahmin or you're trying to be Brahmin. Like you're trying to move up socially and to do that is to extricate meat from your diet. But I also kind of get annoyed when India is called out for the system because it's not the only place with social hierarchies. The United States is just as guilty. In this country, to be able to eliminate something from your diet also um, is a privilege, right? Everyone doesn't have access to fresh vegetables or, you know, things where they could convert their diet to be fully vegetarian. There are some parts of every place where if you make more money or if you live a certain um, elevated lifestyle, you have access to whole foods fresh produce, all these things. But if you live in a food desert, being vegetarian is not necessarily, it's not really a huge option, right? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. All of this made me want to dig into whether my vegetarianism actually is separated from caste. This question is particularly important to me because just as I've carried around some sort of self-righteousness about being a lifelong vegetarian, I've also never felt any guilt about my role in perpetuating the caste system. But even though I was told we didn't have a caste, I'm also not able to get a clear idea on what caste we might have been. Like the religion question, I got really, really confusing answers from my parents about what caste we were. When I asked my dad, Satish, about this in June, he said we are descended from Brahmins. But now... So what caste are we? We are Veera Shaivas. 
That's not a caste. Vira Shaiva is a caste. It's a religion. We don't go by caste. We only go by religion. That's my dad being clear as mud. Caste and religion are the same in my eyes. What? Caste and religion are the same in my eyes. How? I don't know how. I've been badgering my parents on our caste because of what's been happening in India right now. Calls for Hindu nationalism are rampant. In the last several years, over 50 lower caste Indians and Muslims have been lynched. Often, the victims are accused of killing, buying, or selling beef. But it's also these minority populations that rely on the cattle industry for their livelihoods. Dalits are tasked with skinning and disposing of cow carcasses. Dalits especially are the ones doing society's dirty work, so that the rest of the social pyramid can focus on purity, which is a concept important to Hindus. Cows are considered sacred in Hinduism, and the quote, cow protectors, justify killing people because they're angered by such cruelty to animals. Food taboos are being used to decide who belongs and who doesn't. I got no clear answers on the caste question, but one thing did become clear. Vegetarianism and Brahmanism are very, very intertwined with each other. Brahmins were among the first Hindus to practice vegetarianism, and they did so by first starting to worship cows. Beef eaters were then seen as outcasts. To this day, vegetarianism is closely associated with caste. The higher your caste, the higher the likelihood that you don't eat meat. Some even believe that adopting a vegetarian diet will help them move up socially. India was, until about the last decade, uh, nominally secular. This is Dr. Krishnandu Ray. He's a professor of food studies at New York University, and he studies immigrant food pathways. There was an argument about the separation of state and religion. Uh, that is That boundary is becoming less and less important in India over the, uh, in the course of the political mobilization of the last 10 years. And this assertion of food taboos have become uh, much more important in marking identities, in separating Hindu identities uh, from uh, Muslim identities. Just one qualifier. In different parts of India, vegetarianism has always been a much more upper caste than a lower caste uh, phenomenon. Many Indians who are vegetarian think that most Indians are vegetarian. That's not true. There's a wide variety of patterning in India between uh, where you have vegetarianism and who is vegetarian and who eats meat. Uh, There has been a recent polarization around meat eating, especially suspicion of eating beef. The beef taboo actually cleaves the Indian identity in two ways, along religious lines and along caste lines. Because the cow is supposed to be so sacred, Hindus don't typically eat beef. That doesn't mean, though, that Indians of other religions, like Muslims or Christians, don't. The taboo has largely been seen as a dividing line between Hindus and Muslims, but it also cuts off lower caste Indians from sources of protein. What's unique about Hindu vegetarianism is the idea of purity that is attached to vegetarian food. This notion of purity is also closely linked with the ideology of caste, and I would argue is not exactly born out of compassion to animals. What I've come to learn is that Hindu vegetarianism is pretty closely linked with caste purity. 
It's a way to signify status while claiming to be moral. The irony is that Hinduism was not always a bastion of animal protection. Animal sacrifice was practiced all the time by Vedic Indians, and Brahmins were not always vegetarian. There's very clear evidence uh, in the Vedic literature that they are a religion of sacrifice, animal sacrifice, and the animals are being consumed after the sacrifice. By uh, between 600 BCE and 600 CE, the common era, you begin to see new kind of urban centers and state polities emerging in, in South Asia. Along with it, you have the birth of new religions like Buddhism and Jainism, which are born as critiques of the sacrificial religion that is the Vedic religion. There is some debate among scholars over the reasons why Hinduism incorporated vegetarianism into its tenets. But the most accepted theory is the one about pressure from Buddhism and Jainism. There was a time when Buddhism was the most prominent religion in India, and as a result, Brahmanism was put on the defensive. Some people tend to actually erase this history completely from their discourse and pretend like Hindus have always been vegetarian. But even while the origins are murky, the consequences of diet as gatekeeper still play out today. The father of the Indian constitution, Dr. B.R. Ambedkar, was a passionate opponent of the caste system. In his 1948 book, The Untouchables, Who Were They and Why They Became Untouchables, Ambedkar asked why is untouchability so associated with meat-eating? And he came to the same conclusion as historians, that Hindu vegetarianism was a combative response to the rise of Buddhism. In fact, he argues that beef-eating is the root of untouchability, and that Brahmins appropriated Buddhism's message of nonviolence. Here's an excerpt from the book. There's one taboo against meat-eating. It divides Hindus into vegetarians and flesh-eaters. There's another taboo, which is against beef-eating. It divides Hindus into those who eat cow's flesh and those who do not. From the point of view of untouchability, the first dividing line is of no importance. But the second is, for it completely marks off the touchables from the untouchables. Upper caste Indians considered jobs that handle beef or other cow-related products as unclean. And hand-in-hand with purity is the idea that to be pure, you have to abstain from dirty foods, like those made from animal products. One question you might have been asking yourself this whole time, why are cows so sacred? They're seen as mothers and viewed as symbols of life that yield food without having to be killed. Gandhi himself said, Mother cow is in many ways better than the mother who gave us birth. In 2002, the Indian scholar D.N. Jha published his work, The Myth of the Holy Cow. In it, he argued that the sacred cow, a symbol of community identity of the Hindus, was, as many historians have known, slaughtered and eaten by early Hindus. He says, the holiness of the cow is a myth, and that its flesh was very much part of the early Indian non-vegetarian food regimen and dietary traditions. But his book caused such anger amongst Hindus that it was burned outside his house by religious activists and banned by civil courts. Members of the parliament petitioned for his arrest, and he received death threats. According to the New York Times, Ja required a police escort to and from his campus job for 10 months. To shout out Ambedkar again, he argued that untouchability is the result of Brahmins shifting from sacrificing the cow because it was sacred to protecting the cow because it was sacred. 
So now we can understand Hindu vegetarianism as encapsulating two different things. One, as the root of untouchability, and two, as an appropriation of the concept of nonviolence from Buddhism. And the link between these two threads is the cow and its halo of sacredness. So the sacredness of the cow is a myth. The Vedic Hindus ate beef all the time. It was the Buddhists who objected to sacrificing cows, not just out of compassion, but because cows are useful, especially in agrarian societies. Here's Dr. Ray again. So that's the other theory, that this is a higher form of rationality that is encapsulated in a taboo to protect the long-term interest of a people in the long-term survivability of the cow as a producer of valuable products in a region of the world where, in fact, so much of agriculture, agricultural wealth is dependent on, in some ways, cow power. To me, this polarization of the cow is symbolic of what happens when dietary choices are made without intent. Ja didn't point out anything that historians and scholars didn't already know, and yet his life was threatened. So what happens when you shed light on an uninterrogated practice? And how does your identity, when it's so tied to that practice, cope with that interrogation? When we return, Sheila sets out to get some answers. The Veroni family has manufactured cured meats with ancient recipes and artisanal techniques in Italy since 1925. What began as a small grocery store run by five brothers would eventually become a global purveyor of charcuterie. So what's their secret to success? Family and respect, says Veroni USA president Marco Veroni. My father is our guide and his way of teaching us of respecting not only the people inside the company, but the customer to be like a very, very big family. That's important because it means respect for everybody. And in the long run, it pays off. Now, the fourth generation Veronis are leading the helm of the business, priding themselves on bringing charcuterie and cured meats from their family table to yours. Hey, Proof listeners. If there's one thing I want you to know about me, it's that I like using tools that feel good in my hands. That's where OXO comes in. When founder Sam Farber debuted OXO's iconic vegetable peeler, he asked retailers to display the peeler next to a bowl of carrots so people could sample the product at the store. Believe it or not, nothing like it had really been done before. What better way to get a feel for a product than to try it out right then and there? Right now, OXO is offering a special discount for Proof listeners. Just use the code ATK15 for 15% off on OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. As a podcast host, full-time grad student, and dad, I gotta say, I enjoy a glass of wine or three to unwind. And if you're like me and appreciate a nice libation at home, Naked Wines has you covered. They make it easy to get world-class wines delivered to your home. You'll be supporting winemakers who produce wines exclusive to Naked Wines subscribers. And if you're not completely satisfied, there's a hassle-free money-back guarantee. And believe it or not, home delivery is included. Get started today and save $100 off your first order of $140. 
A six-bottle case starts at just $39.99. Visit NakedWines.com slash SummerProof and you'll have yourself a glass of your own. Naked Wines, from the winemaker to your door. And now, back to our story. To help me answer the question of what happens when you interrogate an uninterrogated practice, I turn to my friend Teju Revilogin. I think that that food is so sewn into our day-to-day life, into our habits, into where we get happiness, into the way we think about community, into the way that we feel comfort and joy, that asking people to change their food choices is an extremely difficult thing. Both Teju and I are South Indian vegetarians, and we met in college in Hindi class. Teju, more than most people I know, puts a lot of thought into his choices. It's one of the reasons why I turned to him specifically to help me understand this problem. For example, unlike me, Teju questioned early on why his family wasn't eating meat. When I noticed that in the United States, other people weren't vegetarian, and I came home and asked my parents, hey, other people are eating meat. Like, what's this about? Why don't we eat meat? You know, we had a like really simple conversation, like where does meat come from, which I didn't really understand as a young child and that you have to kill an animal and, and all of these things. And I was like, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. And they said, do you think it's okay to do that to other people? And would you want to do it yourself if you weren't depending on other people to like butcher an animal? And so we had those kinds of conversations when I was a kid, which made it pretty clear to me that I, I wanted to be a vegetarian because I didn't want to hurt other animals. There's a word that Hindus use to describe this compassion that Teju is talking about, ahimsa. It's a concept that seems to be the core of Indian values, and it prohibits the harming of others, including animals. It means nonviolence. My dad referred to it as well, but before this interview, I'm not sure if I'd ever heard him talk about it. The most important word is ahimsa. Ahimsa means nonviolence. So Hindus are very non-violent people. We don't kill anybody. We don't kill animals. So I practice ahimsa all my life. That's why I don't like to kill animals and eat them. Since learning this word, I found it to be somewhat confusing. It's unclear to me how ahimsa and cow worship can coexist, because the flip side of cow worship is the persecution of beef eaters. I began reporting on Indian politics a few years ago, which is how I first came to learn about cow lynchings. It's actually this disconnect, that protecting an animal can cost a human life, that first had me questioning why I am a vegetarian. My dad says Hindus are nonviolent, but that's just not true. Not when actual people have died because of some supposed association to beef. I also asked Dr. Ray what happens when uninterrogated food habits are questioned. What has happened over the last 20 years, especially and the last 10 years in particular, is that the state has become very interested in questions of vegetarianism because of the power of the Hindu Nationalist Party, who seem see themselves as vegetarian culture, as Indian, and partly they use it to basically uh, argue that other cultures which are non-vegetarian may not be adequately uh, Indian. Once this thing becomes an explicit political project, then argumentations develop, then polarization. 
One of the things I've been grappling with as I've been reporting the story is how unintentional my vegetarianism is. I mean, luckily for me, my food habits are good for the environment and good for animals, but I didn't consciously make that decision. And I've been wrestling with what it means to make dietary choices, and in my case, restrictions, without intent, especially when those choices are pretty central to my identity. Would it lead to more internal conflict or would it lead to something else? I turned back to Teju. He said after college, he was asked by a British friend why he eats eggs when the dairy and egg industry in the United States can be so inhumane. When she made that comment, I was really thinking about it. And I started to do some research. And shortly after that, my roommates and I went on a cleanse for 11 days where we weren't eating sugar or gluten or cheese or any number of things. And the first couple of days of that cleanse were very painful. I was just constantly craving pizza, constantly craving ice cream, like all these things that I wasn't eating. I just really wanted. And then after a couple of days, those cravings kind of gently dissolved. And it left me with this like sort of freedom, like, oh, I can really choose how to eat. I don't have to be ruled by my cravings and desires right now. I can actually make an intentional choice. So the question that Robin, my friend, asked me and that, you know, this new freedom made me ask myself, why is it that I originally became vegetarian? And the main reason was compassion. The main reason was compassion for other living beings. And I asked myself if I was living compassionately, knowing what I know and had learned about our system of producing meat and dairy. And I realized that, no, I needed to fully abstain from any of these products in order to live out that value of compassion and and to live out that in a whole, full way. I really don't know what to make of the conflicting origin stories from my parents, and until now, it hasn't mattered. But it matters now because I can't ignore that beef eating is being violently wielded against lower caste Indians and non-Hindus. Since I can't claim that my vegetarianism is because of religion, I have to contend with the idea that it might be because of caste. Teju, who is a Brahmin, says he has an easier time separating his vegetarianism from caste. I also used to think that I was proud of being vegetarian and vegan because those aren't easy things in our world. They are inconvenient, especially in the United States, maybe less so in other places, but I felt proud because I felt like I was making a morally good decision, even though it was difficult and I was living my values and operating with integrity in the world. So I think I felt proud of those things. I think that these days, the reason that I am... Pride is not as strong of an emotion. I do experience it sometimes. Is that it's less and less clear to me that right and wrong are important to me and good and bad are important to me. Those are things that I've been gently letting go of because as I learn more, it's very difficult to know what is right and to to be good. And I actually think that allowing more complexity into those things is helpful because it keeps us postured toward learning and wanting to bring in more information, more perspectives, and to hold more as we understand how to move skillfully, compassionately, caringly, and in service of justice in this world. When I was in college, I took a geography of food class. It was the first time I learned about what it takes to get fresh food to a population, and about how persistent food deserts are in the United States. 
One thing became clear though, food is geography and food choices are closely linked with your place on the map. And that your place on the map in turn is often dictated by your class, race, or socioeconomic status. So finally, I want to understand why I thought being South Indian was such a special signifier of being vegetarian. The regionality of vegetarianism is actually pretty important. To throw back to Dr. Ray, the formations of states in India is closely linked with the spread of vegetarianism. So places in which the state formed, and this is we are talking about, say, 500 CE, the common era, uh, to almost 1500 uh, in terms of the common era, vegetarianism spreads with state formation and the melding of these heterodox religions, which is Buddhism and Jainism and Hinduism. This means that as India's map is being drawn, the ethos of upper caste vegetarianism is being written into the power structures. So encoded into the very fabric of the nation is this dichotomy of purity and uncleanliness and the persistent idea that those who eat meat are dirty and unworthy of dignity. And in present-day India, the most powerful states are in northern and western India. Its power is quite literally dominating the discourse. But what's missing is a clear reason why South Indians are associated with vegetarianism, because the data does not support that assumption. So I caught up with Dr. Ray again. He said there are two reasons. One involves prestige. Around the 8th century, Brahmins migrated south and east at the invitation of rulers and local elites. And remember, Brahmins are much more vegetarian than other groups. So even if they are a minority group, their food habits are desirable. So Brahmin culture, though a minority in parts of southern India, have high prestige because Brahmins came as elite migrants, very different from working class migrants, very different from poor migrants. These were basically ritual experts. Think of them as IT specialists of the 8th and the 9th century. The second reason involves my beloved dosa. Many parts of Southern Indian culture, and especially food culture that we know, like dosa, vada, idli, which is often associated with uh, tiffin culture, which comes out of Udupi, a city in Karnataka, uh, which has a temple complex and has become ubiquitous in India and abroad. Tiffins are circular lunch boxes, and they usually have three to four stacking compartments. They're similar to bento boxes in that they exist to carry homemade food. The types of food that you would pack in a tiffin, like dosas and idlis, are made from fermented doughs and are more durable. This was an especially attractive quality before the advent of refrigeration. So what also helped spread the idea that South Indian food is vegetarian is the commercialization of tiffin culture by global Indian chain restaurants like Saravana Bhavan. But I live in the United States, where I have access to just about any food I want. I'm not limited by geography. So now that I'm done unpacking all the reasons why I thought I was vegetarian, I have to conclude. I'm not vegetarian for any good reason other than it's what I've known. Does that mean I'm living an unexamined life? Does shutting down an entire segment of food do me disservice when it comes to understanding who I am? According to Dr. Ray, the first generation of immigrants often stick pretty closely with the food habits they developed in their homelands. It's the second generation, my generation, that begin to drop the dietary nuances their parents might have brought over into the new country. 
Shayla Kapoor is a journalist who, in 2019, wrote a piece for the New York Times about how her food choices helped her navigate the shifting pieces of her identity. I think on on the surface, the story is really about, um, it's a kind of simple story about my dad and I and an experience where we had family uh, visiting from India. And we, at the time, were not vegetarian and our family were strict vegetarians. And so we were not telling them that we ate meat. And after many weeks of entertaining and not eating meat, my dad and I snuck out to get a burger. At a deeper level, it's about culture and identity and the idea of what identity means in America and being a first-generation American. Shayla is vegetarian again, and for a reason that fits perfectly with what I've been trying to understand about my own relationship with food and identity. Her daughter took a logical reasoning class and concluded there was no reason to eat meat. So Shayla and her family also decided to stop eating meat. It's practical and demonstrated a thoughtful response to a question she had. I've wanted to practice more intent with my choices, so the solution is to, for once, make a choice. I think I've been reluctant to fully engage with the myths around my own vegetarianism because, like I said, I thought it would be somehow alienating. Shayla understood this feeling. I think there's a difference between connecting to the religion of India versus just connecting to the culture of India. And I struggle with that a little bit too, which is, you know, I think what I often go through my mind, like, what does Indian mean? And does Indian... Am I Indian? Like, I still have those thoughts, you know, am I Indian or am I just American? And I I think what it is or what it has become for me is I take a lot of the things that I like about the culture and I that I may like about the religion and I incorporate those things into my life, but I don't incorporate all of the other things. And I think when I think about your story, I think about, you know, would you have been vegetarian if you weren't Indian when you were born? Maybe, maybe not. It's actually rare that an interviewee turns around and asks the interviewer such a meaningful question. Because no, I had not thought about if I would be a vegetarian if I hadn't been born Indian. At this point, the reason I'm vegetarian is literally just because I happen to have parents born in a certain place at a certain time in India. My mom hadn't considered the question either. Do you think you'd be vegetarian if you weren't Indian? I don't think so, because again, it's being vegetarian is a cultural thing. If I was in a different culture and that culture ate meat, yeah, I would be eating meat. I've been trying to answer these questions myself, and I've been trying to do it by actually seeing what happens when I, personally, interrogate an uninterrogated food habit tied up in my identity. So, since speaking with Teju for the story, I've been eating vegan. While reporting the story, I had to face the fact that all the reasons I built my vegetarian identity around didn't hold up to scrutiny. But if there's one thing I'm sure of, food is identity. So I'm crafting a new one, one that I hope reflects a new commitment to compassion and intent. This has been really hard because let me be clear about something. I love cheese, I love eggs. Ice cream and pizza are two literal favorite foods. But thank God, those are vegan. Actually, most of the food my mom makes is vegan. 
Though tragically, Indian desserts are largely made with dairy products. Being vegan has mostly been okay. And no doubt I spend a lot of time mourning the things I can't eat anymore, like birthday cake or grilled halloumi or ghee. But I also do spend a lot of time mentally rehearsing what I'm going to say to justify this change in lifestyle. I went to an Indian wedding in August where I saw and stayed with the families that I have known practically my entire life. When I was seven, my family moved from Colorado to Virginia and helped cobble together this group of fellow Indian American families with kids who were mine and my sister's ages. When I was 14, my parents moved us back to Colorado and the loss of that Indian community hit me pretty hard. Having no brown person support in high school almost certainly contributed to me hating my race. But these families have helped raise me, and they are also always the homes that I return to when I'm visiting Virginia. They feed me, they house me, they watch my sister and I grow up, and they have never tried to serve me meat. I hadn't told them I was experimenting with veganism. And yes, I certainly felt awkward about it because there was no way I was going to impose another dietary restriction on them. I did feel slightly isolated because I felt like I had a secret that might make them uncomfortable. But like I said, I wasn't going to tell my auntie that the curry she made with milk was something I wouldn't eat. But when I'm able to cook my own food or make my own choices, I'll be making a conscious decision to eat vegan. My mom said something that really resonated with me when I was interviewing her. It was a slightly off-topic anecdote. So I, I learned, yeah, I learned of, you know, some of the basic things I learned from my mother. Like what? You know, sambars and, and the curries that go with the chapatis and things like that. But after I came to this country, because I had limited access to, you know, in those days or in the early 80s, I had limited access to Indian uh, stuff. I had to improvise with whatever I had. I Every time I went to India, I, I picked up a lot of cooking books, a lot of cookbooks, and I tried to make different things with the same vegetables. So come... Actually, now, I hardly make anything that my mother did. There's just a handful of things that I make that my mother did. That story stuck with me because I, too, have been teaching myself how to cook Indian food from blogs and cookbooks and YouTube videos. That dosa you heard us make earlier? That was the first time we've ever really cooked together. Bloggers and recipe developers with hyphenated identities, like mine, are shaping the way I cook Indian food for myself. So instead of paneer, I might use tofu. And accidentally, just like my mom before me, I've been shaping a cuisine that fits my tastes, locations, and philosophies. Full circle, like a dosa. Thanks to Sheila V. Kumar for bringing us this story. If you like proof, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. This episode of Proof is hosted by me, L. Simone Scott, and the podcast is made by the following cast of characters. I'm Yumi Araki, the managing producer. I'm executive producer Caitlin Kelleher. I'm senior producer Caroline Rickert. I'm Terrence Johnson, and I'm the associate producer. I'm Bridget Lancaster, creator and the founding host and producer. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton and Anya Gzeshik of Ultraviolet Audio. 
Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Jen Margolis is our director of post-production and our line producer is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Angela Yang. Special thanks to Sheila's aunties and uncles who patiently answered her many questions about why they are or aren't vegetarians. Jack Bishop is the chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen and David Nussbaum is America's Test Kitchen CEO. Thanks to our sponsors for this season, OXO, Naked Wines, Veroni, and Porter Road. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.